Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. All right. We're going to get started. Can we lower the music, maybe? How's everyone doing? Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for, for joining us. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. It's a monthly reading series held here at the KGB Bar. We hold it uh, every third Wednesday of the month. It's always free. There's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, tip your bartenders, and working hard to keep you hydrated. Uh, so, I am very excited about our readers tonight. Uh, we have Le- Leanna Renee Heber and Kat Rambo going to read for you tonight. Uh, I have been a fan of, of both of their work for a long time. I can't remember when I met either of them because it, we go back a long time, but uh, they always just astonish me, not just with their productivity, but the creativity and just the, 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 uh, just the, the constant uh, production of, of, uh, of, um, of just incredible work. So. Uh, I'm, I'm super happy about that. Um, we do have uh, some books for sale. Mm-hmm. Leanna has a, a number of copies here. What do we have? The Eterna Solution. Mm-hmm. I, have, Still. Yeah, I have my whole so Eterna File series. The and whole Eterna File series. So, and Kat, what do you got? Do you have books for I sale? Kat does not have books for sale. Yes. Did you hear that? She has science fiction writer trader cards. And also, you know, there is something called the internet now I heard of that you could you could use this thing called Google and find their books and buy them and the authors would really appreciate that and so would their publishers. Ellen Datlow, uh, my partner in crime here, um, is also giving away some books, uh, The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 9. 2017. 2017. So at the... Two Two paperbacks, one audiobook. So at the break, um, Ellen's going uh, at the beginning of the second half. Before Cat reads, Ellen is going to raffle them off with some some trivia questions that she hasn't figured out what they are yet. <laughs> but she will still stump you. No, hopefully not. Um, so next month, December nineteenth, we have Nicole Corner Stace and Maria Devana Headley. So hope will join will join us for that. Yes. January 16th, Victor Laval and Julie C. Day. February February 20th, F. Brett Cox and Pang Shepard. March 20th, Molly Tanzer and Carrie Laban. April 17th, Nathan Ballengrid and Arcady Martin or Martin? Martins. Arcady? Arcady? Arcady Martin. May 15th, Kaya Shante Wilson and Simon Stranzas. Uh, I don't have, do you have past May? I only have up to May. Um, but yeah, so one more, 
One more month. We have T TBA, so they're, they're our favorite guests. But uh, we hope you'll join us in 2019. 2018 was a really great year, thanks to you guys. Um, also, uh, we, you know, I, I sometimes forget to mention this, but we have a podcast. So if you're not in New York City, obviously you guys are all here tonight, but maybe some of you aren't local, or you can tell your friends, you put it online. We have a podcast. So if you go to kgbfantasticfiction.org, all these readings are... Uh, streamed on our podcast. You can listen to it anytime. So this is a great way for people who don't live in the city to, to hear great readings. Um, so don't forget to sign your waivers, guys. Uh, you, did, you already signed it, right? Did you read the fine print? No, yes. Yeah, put yeah. my voice on the interweb. Yes. All right. So um, do we have any other announcements? I think that's... Oh, yeah. So if you want to be on our mailing list, we send out uh, just a couple emails a month about the upcoming readings. It's at kgbfantasticfiction.org. You go there, you click on the mailing list. I think there's a pop-up. It'll pop up in like a couple seconds. You put your email in, you're done. And then, and then we'll let you know about the upcoming readings. Our first reader tonight is Leanna Renee Heber. She's an award-winning author, actress, and playwright who has written 12 gothic, ghostly, gas lamp fantasy novels for Tor and Kensington books, such as the Strangely Beautiful series, the Eternophiles, the Magic Most Foul trilogy, and the Spectral City series. Her work has been featured in many notable anthologies and translated into many languages. A veteran of stage and screen, Leanna works as a Manhattan ghost tour guide for Burrows of the Dead. Her website is LeannaReneeHeber.com. Here she is. Thanks. Thank you, darlings. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for coming out tonight. I know it's, it's an awkward time of the year, but publishing stops for no one. And I have a release on Tuesday. So, so um, I... I'm very excited about The Spectral City. That's what's up next. So on Tuesday, The Spectral City releases, and it is the first book in a new series with Kensington. Kensington this year launched a new sci-fi fantasy line called Rebel Base Books, and I'm thrilled to be part of their launch year. And um, with this, I get to touch down in the Heberverse, as it has sort of become. All of my books are parallel worlds in which characters go from one to the next. You don't have to be familiar with my other series to pick up uh, with them as they go forward. Um, but if you are familiar with um, my series, you'll notice some familiar faces. So I'm going to start with the very beginning of The Spectral City. This book arose from several um, inspirations. One of them being how, how much Penny Dreadful pissed me the hell off. Um, so, you know those things when you get mad at something, rewrite it and fix the ending. So that's sort of what I'm doing with some of this. Um, in terms, I, I basically have um, described this series as the medium meets the alienist. So the show, if you, should take, if you take the show medium, and you merge it with my favorite book, The Alienist, then you kind of get my series. So, um, and, and those who are familiar with my work might recognize some names as we go forward. So, it is 1899 Manhattan, and 
all is uh, all is very ghostly in this particular world. So my, my worlds are, are such that it is a realistic world in which paranormal things happen. 1899 Manhattan. Prologue, The Spectral City. Manhattan dinner parties in the gilded 1890s had become a studied spectacle and opulence for the ruling class of the country's wealthiest city. The bustling, ever-striving, never-sleeping metropolis's class of most fashionable, up-to-date, technologically accessorized, bejeweled, and beholden to no one but themselves were the kinds of company that the Prenz family kept, curating people and their statuses like one might think of assembling a stock portfolio. That's how it appeared to Margaret Haythorne as she floated into the parlor for light aperitif. She knew the types, their predilections, their concerns. Margaret had been born into wealth during her young life. She'd been in, quite enamored of high society's trappings, dalliances, and luxuries, their petty dramas, and the consequential ways their decisions affected the city. From her vantage point, she could see the full scope. She had seen and learned much since those days of carefree, impetuous youth. Not only had she come to understand the tired adage of money not buying happiness, but she realized that Poe had been on to something with the Mask of the Red Death. There were dangers in being too shielded, too gilded, too able to make up one's own rules for life, too easily sheltered away from the horrors and the cares of the world. She could feel a sense of dread here, now, as if the Red Death were lurking in the hallway just beyond. Maybe it was, clad in some beautiful House of Worth gown or some finely tailored frock coat with satin lapels. It should be noted that Margaret Haythorne herself was dead. Her perspective was one of two worlds, and for nearly two decades, she had floated between the living and the dead. New York was a body. She felt destined to orbit an otherworldly magnet. There was so much to do. There was so much to learn. There was so much to fix, to reveal, to fight. Looking into the mirror, she saw a wisp of herself, nearly entirely transparent. There she was, just a slight contouring of the air where her figure floated. She was nothing but a slight shade of glowing lines, delineating features, frozen in youth. She had agreed to stay a consistent New York City haunt because of the living. Her ongoing work with family and friends gave her purpose and mission she'd never had as an admittedly vapid socialite whose ill-advised curiosity had killed her like the most inelegant of cats. <laughs> but to say she had full command over her immortal coil would be a lie. Take this evening, for example. She'd been drawn into a stranger's mansion and found herself floating about a fine parlor, bedecked in marble, velvet, seemingly unending gold trim, with no idea why. Spiritualists, as the uniquely American version of the sect had been born of Quakers, would often utter that they spoke as the spirits moved. Sometimes the spirits, too, were moved by unseen forces and unfathomable hands. She had been moved here for reasons she hoped would reveal themselves, surveying the room, floating along behind the present company at a sufficient distance so as not to strike up complaints of drafts or chills, offered Maggie the clues of family name and fortune. Framed images on the parlor walls featured images of beautiful women in frothy day dresses holding decorative bottles, boasting the great calming and healing powers of Prenz tonics. This is where she was, the Prenz mansion. This family had been on her mind. Something was not right about this place, about this family, and the spirit world knew it. She now floated above the mantelpiece, 
littered with objects dart from around the world and watched the festivities unfold. There was a medium present, or at least she was costumed as such, with an embroidered set of robes, a turban, and too much eye makeup. The most theatrical ones who appropriated religious aspects of other cultures and muddied the meaning right out of them with fetishistic Orientalism tended to be the most fraudulent ones. So Maggie was certain it wasn't the medium who had summoned her directly into this place. No, fellow ghosts had drawn her in. Two grayscale children, one dressed in traditional garb of a skirt and vest, the other in shorts with shoulder straps straight out of a Bavarian folktale. The grim storybook children pointed to the mantle between a set of candelabras, sat a simple box with a latch. Open it, the little girl begged. We've been weakened here and nothing responds to our touch. Open it, show everyone, throw it. Maggie knew from working with ghost colleagues and mediums on a spate of recent mysteries that living subjects under possible investigation react vastly differently to poltergeist activity. She had no idea what she was about to set in motion, but she didn't have anything to lose. Eve Whitby, the young lady to whom Maggie had pledged the work and gifts of her spirit, would be cross with her for acting on such a hunch without informing her. There are protocols, paperwork. One can't just barge in and begin levitating family belongings. She tried, as if she were a bemused mother, not a 19-year-old taskmaster, a brisk old soul in a youthful body. But here was the opportunity to engage with an actual object that might be hard evidence and not conjecture. No detective could work with conjecture. She'd learned it was their least favorite word and liability they couldn't afford. It was clear that none of the living people in the room saw the three spirits. As there were no indications, no shudders, no looking around as if suddenly unsettled, no brushing down the hackle of small hairs on the backs of their bejeweled or satin-swathed necks, a poltergeist would prove the most, the most surprising, unsettling, and least expected event of the night. The fact that the medium didn't look around or sense any presences when Maggie or the children appeared revealed the woman as a fraud. The trick would be mustering the energy the momentum to move an object. She'd long since forgotten what being corporeal felt like, and that had always been the easiest way to just simply interact with an object like, like you would have done in life, feeling a phantom limb in reverse. Overthinking it was also a curse, so she just allowed herself to rifle through a memory box of every time she'd been humiliated or patronized at an event like this during her corporeal life. Just because she'd been in high society didn't mean it had ever been kind to her. It treated young, eligible women as pretty cattle sold to the highest bidder in the marketplace of social climbing. This surge of frustration, that was enough. She swatted a weightless hand at the metal box. It went flying and landed at the center of a floral Persian rug, opening and spilling its contents a stack of photographic images. Cries went up everywhere. All adults in the room reacted with a jump or a vocal start. Bodies leaned in, but no one approached the box or its contents. Maggie took a moment to stare at the pictures she'd revealed to the company. Something bothered her deeply about their nature. They were all posed with props and scenery, costumes, crowns, halos. There was something too stilted about the figures, something eerie about their features. Post-mortem photography. When it was so common, one learned to tell the difference between images of the living and photographs of the dead. 
Often a photograph of a dead loved one was the only picture a family had of them. But these were more elaborately staged than Maggie had ever seen, far more than was custom. Maggie stared at the ghosts of the two young children, seven years old, who had fierce, defiant looks on their faces as they took in the horrified expressions of the living. She saw a photograph lying there of the two of them in their Bavarian garb, posed with a shepherd's crook and a prop sheep. Their eyes were closed, but their eyelids had been painted with eyes as if they were open. A tall, thin, dour-looking man in a fine umber-brown suit coat strode forward, his long face elongated in a frown, his auburn hair graying at the temples. The man scooped up the strewn images with an irritated sigh, glaring in the direction of Maggie. This man, she determined, must be a prince patriarch. What? What were those? A young woman sitting on a velvet settee asked, leaning forward curiously, her blue silk gown pooling around her. Everyone stared at their host, who offered a thin-lipped smile. Confiscated property from a wayward friend. I've been known to minister to those among my station who are lost. This is a friend's collection. What an unfortunate fetish to covet deceased who are not his kin. I took them away, lest he be haunted. Perhaps I have brought a haunt upon us instead. What an ungodly thing. Isn't that right, Madam Nightstar? Maggie nearly snorted at the unoriginal stage name of the medium. The man turned to the medium, who was white as a sheet. Oh, of course. Mr. Prince, of course. Maggie wanted to interject that there was nothing inherently ungodly about a spirit in the least, but the man ushered everyone out of the room. Once the parlor door had closed behind the last guest, the towering man closed the distance between himself and Maggie in two easy strides. <sighs> Naughty girl. The man clucked his tongue, staring at Maggie directly, eye to eye. That answered whether or not she could be seen by him. He hadn't given her any clue before. Wily. How did you get in? He pressed. Maggie turned towards the children. They were gone. Just... Passing by, Maggie replied, unsure if he could hear her. Well, now that you're here, stay indefinitely, the man said with a leering grin. He moved to the door to a switch along the wall that surely controlled the lighting. She had assumed from the opulence of the home that the lighting was electric. It was too bright, had a harsher quality, and the man made it only more so as he turned a knob and the lights grew even brighter, impossibly so. The room grew blinding. Maggie squinted, raising an incorporeal arm over her eyes as if she could shield herself. Along with the bright light came a hum, a rising, a whirring, grating noise like a mechanical roar. The sound hurt, the light burned. She felt as though she were being torn apart. She opened her mouth to scream, and then utter darkness. Chapter One. Only the ghosts surrounding Eve Whitby could cool her blushing cheeks as the inimitable, inimitable, Theodore Roosevelt, governor of New York, stood to toast her before a host of lieutenants, detectives, and patrolmen, all of whom found her highly dubious. Many of these same New York Police Department officers found Roosevelt just as problematic. He wasn't police commissioner anymore. He'd used the notoriety from having cleaned up corruption within police departments and ridden it straight to the governorship. But as some detractors noted, the man could not leave well enough alone. So here he was, meddling again with the police, and Eve was at the center of it. 
while Eva, Eve tried to appear confident in most situations, being at the center of a crowd made her nerve-wracked and flushed. When one followed a calling, passion was often a driving force that was greater than self-assuredness. Whole departments turning to her and lifting glasses made her stomach lurch and waver like the transparent, hovering ghosts glowering about the room who made her work possible. She looked down at the hem of her black dress, simple light wool attire of clean lines and polished buttons. She'd designed to look like a police matron's uniform, but in the colors of mourning. When she took on this department, she donned mourning, not out of sorrow, but in celebration of her co-workers, the dead. I am a woman of particular purpose, she thought, an internal rallying cry. Any moment, Roosevelt was going to make an announcement about the ghost precinct, the project she'd put everything in her young life on hold to spearhead. Taking a breath, she steadied her feet, shifting the heel of her black boots on the smooth wooden floor. She glanced in a mirror and tucked an errant, thick black lock of hair back into her bun, trying to shift her pallid, nearly sickly-looking expression into something that appeared more commanding. The manner in which the three ghosts at the edge of the room were bobbing insistently in the air meant something. They had something to say and were her most vocal operatives. Vera, Olga, and little Zofia, who was actually wringing her hands. Eve had asked that her operative spirits not come tonight for fear of distraction, but they had come regardless. She ignored them, though their behavior made her nervous. Something was wrong. She couldn't ask what. Not now, not in the spotlight, in front of a crowd in front of a crowd who didn't trust her. Roosevelt, dressed in a white suit with a striped waistcoat, his iconic mustache moving with his expressive face as if it were punctuating his dialogue, adjusted his wire-rimmed glasses, lifted a glass, and bid his fellows do the same. I give you Miss Evelyn H. Whitby, daughter of Lord and Lady Denbury, and I bid you toast the inception of her ghost precinct. Now, because we live in an age of skeptics and charlatans in equal measure, we're not going to go public about this precinct beyond our department heads here. We don't need undue fuss. We don't need hysterics. What we know conclusively is that this young woman's talents aided in solving two brutal murders to date. As we near a new century, no one knows what new crimes will come with it. But one thing we can count on is that there will always be the dead with a perspective that none of us have. It's foolish to leave a resource untapped, especially as this city grows by the thousands every month. We await many more resolutions and have directed her to cases that have gone cold. Perhaps, dare I say, she and her colleagues may even garner a few premonitions to stop a crime before it's even begun. To the young lady and her ghosts, whether you're a believer or not, she has assured me there's nothing to be afraid of. There was a polite, if less than enthusiastic, clap of hands. Nothing to be afraid of, Eve repeated to herself. That's, a, that's your purpose, to make ghosts a less frightful reality for those who do believe, for those who can see. You are their champion. You're the voice of the departed. Be proud. Show these people how proud you are to be the advocate of the dead. Eve nodded to the politician, squared her shoulders, lifted her flute, and allowed herself to enjoy the distinct, sweet bite of a good champagne, feeling the chill of the dead on the air. The intense, inimitable Mr. Roosevelt had never tried to convince the New York Metropolitan Police Force that creating a ghost precinct was a good idea. He'd simply done it. 
He made it Eve's purview and ensured, thanks to powerful allies, that she had access to departmental services, support, and resources. He'd also kept the press out of it, lest the precinct become, as he'd said, an unnecessary rodeo. I don't want it to field calls for you to contact departed loved ones unless they can solve crimes. <laughs> Roosevelt wasn't a man who much cared what other people thought when he was committed to a cause, and that quality was maybe the only thing she had in common with the bombastic legislator. When Roosevelt had told her family he wanted to honor Eve and the precinct, her grandmother, Evelyn, whom she was named for, had taken control of the arrangements to ensure the reception was held in the grand downstairs foyer of the Players Club, Edwin Booth's beautiful brownstone complex in Gramercy Park, established in hopes of making the theater more respectable, a much harder sell after his brother had killed President Lincoln. <laughs> While most of the city's grandest clubs were for men only, as was the Players Club regular membership, Eve fought additional stigma regarding spiritualists, mediums, and psychics and the lot. A hierarchy of respectability that kept a celebration like this relegated only to theatrical spaces. Whether they were believed or exposed as frauds, people passionately loved or hated a woman who spoke with the dead. There was hardly a middle ground. She could not be entirely lauded. She would always be considered suspect. Eve had heard one detractor say that people like her were for parlor tricks, not politics. The man had been a New York congressional representative and had stood in the way of her department when it was first being finalized with the police commissioner. Roosevelt had ignored him and had bid Eve do the same. She was hardly as positioned or as powerful as the governor, but she tried to follow his lead. The gifts Eve manifested placed a distinct strain on her family not wishing to bring loving parents any inconvenience, let alone pain. She tried to black out her gifts once. That effort had nearly killed her at age nine. When she tried to stop hearing the dead, migraines had seared her head for weeks and she couldn't eat or sleep. Only when she'd opened back up to hear the murmurs of the spirit world could she breathe again, her fever breaking and life returning to her paranormal normal. The reality of this precinct meant she could never go back on her talents. The dead would never let her. Roosevelt was staring at her. So were her ghosts, expectantly. So were all the men. Would you like to say a few words, Miss Whitby? Roosevelt prompted. Ah. She wouldn't have liked to, uh, as really, nerves always got the better of her if she was put on the spot in such a manner, but this was necessary. Taking deep, a deep breath, she reminded herself that this department was her mission. It was not about her. It was about respect for the great work of mediums and all the good the dead could do for the living, just like Edwin Booth had sought to lift up the profession of theater by this grand space. In this day and age of charlatans and magicians in the guise of spiritualism, I blame no one their skepticism. In fact, I encourage it. Skepticism offers investigative integrity. A questioning mind solves a case. My specific and unprecedented precinct hopes to earn continued trust by the thing we could all agree on, solving crime and easing suffering. She could see the unsure faces before her, some bemused, some seeming openly hostile. Every woman encountering a predominantly male field had seen these same faces, even without her subject matter being additional fodder for derision. Her nerves crested, but she kept talking. She believed above all in her mission, and no critic could change that. 
However unorthodox the means, she continued, raising her voice and commanding more of the room, however unprecedented the methods, our aims are mutual and always will be. Ghosts are far too often misunderstood, and I hope that by working with them in proven, positive ways, our work can begin to change the perception of hauntings. Spirits can walk where we cannot hear what fails our mortal senses and keep the most vigilant of watches when we must take our rest. I hope you will see them as a help, not a horror. She finished not with a request, but a demand. Thank you for your support. Here, here, Roosevelt exclaimed. Now, enjoy refreshments and the fine company. I'll be here if any of you men need me, and Miss Whitby has been gracious enough to agree to answer some questions from the department present, provided they're posited with all due respect. <laughs> respect and transparency. I didn't clean this filthy force up for nothing. Well, I reckon the ghost precinct will be our most transparent department of all. <laughs> <laughs> Roosevelt slapped a hand on a serving table and enjoyed his pun amidst a few grins. When asked Eve's opinion on Mr. Roosevelt, she had once replied that he was a man who wanted to preserve wilderness so he could shoot things within it. <laughs> that summed him up, she concluded. She found, it, she found that many of his ideas sens were sensible, but sh she was often baffled by his road getting there. But no one could deny he was a compelling, larger-than-life character who never failed to surprise. Grateful was her most abundant sentiment. She'd been given steady employment, without which, like all the many strong wor working women around her, she'd go mad. The moment she'd signed paperwork on the precinct, the constant dull ache that rested at the base of her neck, even if she wasn't having a migraine, had eased. If It was as if the whole of the spirit world that had clutched at her from behind had released their talons ever so slightly. It was a world that wanted to be seen and acknowledged, and that's why it sought to communicate in such a wide array of methods. Now it could be seen in a whole new light and given responsibilities. At 19 years old, when most young women of any kind of title in society were very busy with their seasons and hoping for a well-placed marriage, you found she had no interest in following the path for supposed peers in the city. Of course, there was the occasional ball she attended due to the pressures of her father's lordship, her grand's high society dealings, her grandfather's metropolitan museum of art soirees. But theirs were generally philanthropic functions that had great purpose, not dances meant to pair up eligible bachelors with debutantes. The former suited her, the latter bored her. Here at the players, the fireplaces were roaring as the new electric fixtures were buzzing in a juxtaposition of ancient and modern light and heat making the room so warm that the ghostly retinue on the margins caused a much-needed draft. But she couldn't keep ignoring them. If she did, they might start throwing things, and now was hardly the best time for a poltergeist. Roosevelt held up his hand, hailing Eve as if he wished to speak with her, but men in tailcoats blocked his path as he took a step forward. As legislators were forever called upon for favors, the veritable inferno of energy that was Roosevelt was immediately beset by an entourage. Eve took this chance to slip away into another room where the ghosts and she could, spe could speak freely. Glancing around, she moved to an opening in the crowd, preparing to make her way to whatever empty, dark space she could find in the grand place. But a young detective stepped into her path, and she paused with a smile she hoped did not appear strained. She recognized the dark-haired, clean-shaven, sharp-featured man with rich brown eyes ringed in blue, a distinct gaze that pierced her right to the core. During a recent case, Eve, Eve's ghosts 
had bid her examine a crime scene herself as they were having trouble describing it. While she had not been welcome at the site, and it was assumed she would both be in the way and taint the evidence, this man had quelled the protesting officers on duty. He had found a place for her to stand within view of the exsanguinated body and take notes. It had been grim, but her composure was a test that she'd passed. Detective Horowitz, it's good to see you again. I hope you're well. This is a more pleasant scene than when I last saw you. Yes, he grimaced. That ugly bloodletting. Have you figured that one out? How a body could be that drained? He asked. He shook his head with a humorous laugh. There were suction marks near the puncture wounds. Something drew it out of him. How odd. I I do believe in ghosts, but not vampires, detective. Well, that's reassuring at least. His face transformed from angular to warm for one moment. Thank you for honoring me this evening, Eve said, bobbing her head. I do have a question for you, if you don't mind. Go on. She glanced over at Zofia, the spirit of a ten-year-old in a simple pinafore, bobbing in the air impatiently, gesturing for her to hurry up with his chat. I try, Miss Whitby, whenever I can, to work in new technologies. Finger, um, fingerprinting, psychological profiles from alienists, taking exquisite stock of a scene so that not even a hair of evidence is tampered with. In regards to your department, say one were to believe in poltergeists. I, uh, to be clear, I don't believe. But if I did, wouldn't a host of spirits be liable to disrupt and thus corrupt a crime scene by moving objects? Couldn't any of the various ways the spirit world has been said to commune with mortals potentially foul a scene? She stared at him. It was a valid point. My spirits aren't one for moving things, she began. They aren't the poltergeist sort, at least not that I've been aware. But it's a cogent point to bring it up to them to be aware of the ways their presences might affect a given environment. To be fair, my ghosts wouldn't leave any additional fingerprints. <laughs> the young man twisted his lips as if he wanted to smile, but it's too focused to allow the indulgence. Uh, what I've tried with my contacts, detective, is to cultivate details beyond a crime scene. Might my, my ghosts and mediums pick up on expansive aspects, specifics of place? They're drawn to things the living might find mundane, and they do so in a non-linear manner, so I have to constantly sift for relevance. That's what was so maddening to me at first, why ghosts kept coming and telling me far too many details about seemingly meaningless things, until I finally saw a pattern in the noise. These patterns led to the arrests and cases solved that Mr. Roosevelt so kindly referenced. While I am glad of the eventual outcome, Miss Whitby, how can you be sure all the facts presented to you were real and not just luck? Suddenly, Roosevelt was behind him like some bold, pouncing apparition. Because she has spies, the man cried, waggling his great mustache. Her ladies, both living and dead, are everywhere and in everything, he added delightedly. And if any man here underestimates a woman's craftiness or her ability to pick up a litany of details so intense as to leave you breathlessly disarmed from argument, well, then you have never had a single one of them cross with you. This, this broke a distinct layer of ice. The entourage of fine suits swarmed the governor again, and Eve edged away, Horowitz following a pace behind. 
When he's right, he's right, Eve said, turning the detective with a smile. Just as Eve felt that the man was beginning to warm to her, the temperature around her went ice cold. A plummeting of 20-some degrees wasn't just a draft, it meant only one thing. A ghost wasn't just nearby, but directly behind her, toying with a lock of her hair, threatening to lift it up into the air. She was familiar with this trick to get her attention. Eve smoothed the lock back down again and gave a sideways glare to the spirit. I look forward to your further questions, detective, but if you'll excuse me for the moment. She turned away, crossed around the corner of the next threshold, and stared into the eyes of the chill directly. Her best young scout, little Zofia, floated before her in full grayscale, dark hair back in a haphazard bun, and a plain work dress blackened just slightly at the hem, the only reminder of her premature death in a garment district fire. Because the ghosts who communed with Eve were full consciousness spirits, her burned body wasn't what became a shade. This was her silvery soul. The agony of death was long shed. Souls were glowing whole while the body's raw materials turned to dust. Spiritualism's greatest and most comforting gift was this reassurance. I'm, I'm sorry to disturb you, Eve. I, I really am, but you have to know, she said in a thick Polish accent. Her ghostly voice never heard above a whisper, no matter how empathetic. I know you told us to hang back, not to talk to you, but... Eve turned her head away from the crowd, moving to the shadows of the hall, so that she couldn't be seen talking to thin air. But, she murmured through clenched teeth, Margaret is gone, the spirit replied. Eve blinked at the spirit. The spirit wavered in the air, blinking back. Gone? Eve prompted, not entirely sure what Zofia meant. The spirit world was full of comings and goings. Gone, gone, Zofia insisted. None of us ghosts have any sense of her. Candle is out. We've tried everything. There's no waking her. There's no summoning her. This world or the next, we cannot find her. Our Maggie, she's gone. Eve reeled. What could be worse timing? Just as she was on the cusp of being taken seriously, her best asset was dead. Again. <laughs> Thank you. So, no, it's, uh, so the books for sale are from, uh, so this is from the Spectral City. The Spectral City will be released on Tuesday. So we are right before. And uh, if you go on to um, all of my various media sites have links to uh, a little pre-order campaign. I just discovered today that the little gift that Kensington will send you if you give them the confirmation or number for your order, it's a beautiful Victorian key, which is also a bottle opener. So I'm really excited about this. This is very on brand for me that you get spirits with spirits. Um, so, so, so yeah, so there's a, a wonderful pre-order campaign for Kensington. Um, and so that's, um, that is on all of my social medias. I also have cards um, that the Spectral City releases on Tuesday. The ebook is only $3.99. It's very affordable. Um, it's also available in trade paperback and also in audio. I'm very excited about that. Um, but what I have here is I have copies of the Eterna Files, the Eterna series. It's a trilogy and it does deal with similar supernatural themes. So I promise you, if you like this stuff, you'll like my other works. I also have copies of Darker Still. Um, Eve Whitby is the daughter of the two characters in Darker Still and that trilogy. So she's carrying on the family legacy of the paranormal. So um, uh, it will be 
happy to answer any questions. Again, if you are able to support the Spectral City, I'm really grateful. And we're having a launch party next Thursday at Word in Brooklyn. And Andrea Janes, my boss at Burrows of the Dead, she's going to be there co-hosting. We're going to talk about why telling ghost stories is such a long-standing and delightful tradition. There will be free booze. Again, Spirits with Spirits is my favorite theme. Um, and uh, so that's uh, next Thursday. There have been little flyers mulling about. If you didn't get one, I have them. So thanks again for your support. I love this place. I love Ellen and Matt, and I love all of you. So thank you, and uh, happy haunting. Thank you for your haunting reading. Anyway, we'll take about a 10, 15 minute break. <coughs> you can buy some books here, buy a drink, commune with each other, and we'll Yay. see you soon. Welcome. Shh. Welcome to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, before we get going, I have three books to give away. Ooh. Two volumes, trade paperback of the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 9. And one audio of the volume nine, except it has the wrong um, author contributors on the on the cover. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember, I can't remember if the whole run was like that or not. It may be worth nothing, but <laughs> but but the stories are the same that are in the paperback. <laughs> so anyway, first I will give away one copy of trade paperback. I have three questions, trivia questions. Okay. <clears throat> All right, how many volumes of the year's best fantasy and horror were published by St. Martin's Press? Wow. That's easy. Come on, guys. I would think that, I would think you people read my stuff. Yes? 32. No. Uh, <laughs> Try again. Three. For the year's best fantasy and horror with me and Terry, and then Gavin and Kelly and me? Yeah. 12. Nope. Oh my gosh, I didn't think it would be that hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. <laughs> um, yes? You're closest. But since you're, unless someone has a closer guess, I'll give it to you. No one No. No, okay, you got it. You got it. You got it. It's 21. 21 volumes. Okay, I'll give away, next one is another copy of the uh, trade paperback. All right, Terry Windling and I co-edited six volumes of adult stories based on fairy tales. I, you guys are not gonna get this, I, anyway. <laughs> what, is the, what is the only one of the six volumes whose title doesn't exactly follow the others in structure? <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, I, they're usually too easy. Did you think these were easy questions? <laughs> well, usually they're too easy. So, I, so I, all right. Well, what do I do instead? I mean, how do I make it an easier one? Um, I'll, I'll tell you the answer, but let me, but let's figure out an easier. Um, all right. Do you know? All right. Does anyone know the title of the first book in the series? Oh God. Okay. Let's try something else. <laughs> All right, well, I'll go to my third question, which you're not going to know either, probably. But, and then I'll figure out another. Okay. Um, which horror anthology of mine has, has two editions, two different editions, one in the UK, where it was a full volume and it won the World Fantasy Award, and later, I think the next year, it was published in the US and it was much shorter? Anyone? <laughs> 
right. the Wikipedia. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll give you the answers, and I have to figure out how to do the other questions. But anyway, that was Little Deaths. And the second question was um, Ruby Slippered Golden Tears. Because that, and Terry hated it, but the problem was we needed a title right away. And I thought it was perfect because, although that's the only one that was, as I said, was, you know, different from Black Swan, White Raven, and Black Heart, Ivory Bones. And she didn't like the Roby Slippers, Golden Tears, but it kind of went and we had, you know, we had to go like to production like fast. <laughs> so now what else do I ask? It's easy. <laughs> Anyone else have a question? Come, have a question. Can you think of anything? Easy? Well, it's got to be. It doesn't have to be something of mine. That you didn't mention, right? Just ask what the names of your cats are. Oh, okay. All right. Well, someone. You cheated. That's not fair. Okay, it's not fair. All right. Come on, someone. Someone who is. No. Someone who is disqualifying themselves and will give me a good question. Oh, God. All the right. Um, velocity. <laughs> um, 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 Laden or unladen? <laughs> uh, shoot. I didn't know this was going to be so hard. <laughs> Usually I have questions that are so easy that no one even has to think about them, and so I wanted something more difficult. Well, who's doing the most of your anthologies? I don't know. I'd have to figure it oh. out. <laughs> um, okay, does anyone know the, the most recent anthology that Terry and I co-edited? Anyone? Come on, guys. Oh, yeah, I know this one, but I can't say it. Why not? Because I'm in it. So what? He has a copy already. No, but I mean, I can't win. Actually, that's not it. That's not it. Terry didn't co-edit Alice with me. I did it by myself. What? You might as well say it. Spit it out. No, it's Queen Victoria's Book of Spells. Oh. So anyway, which I, which I am in. Yes, I know. So, so you don't get it. So, so no one gets it. Wait a minute. Okay. Yeah, but I, I feel like I'm already disqualified. All right. Something about Alice in Wonderland. Um. Oh God. This is impossible. Should I just throw it? You know. I met if someone's had a birthday recently. Okay. There you go. Um. Did someone have? Did someone? Did someone just have a birthday or is about to have a birthday? October what? Thirtieth. Somebody born in October thirtieth. Did someone say October thirtieth? Oh, I thought you said June. Oh, okay, you can have one. So, so I don't know who would want an audio book, but. Okay, if someone gives me a really good answer as to why you want an audiobook other than to resell it. Who's, tra- who's traveled the farthest? Oh, okay, that's a good idea, but they will then want to carry a book around with them? I mean, an audio? Okay, who's traveled the farthest to get here? Weehawken. Yeah, it's definitely Catholic. Anyone? Weehawken counts, right? Anyone farther than Seattle? Manhattan. All right, you have it. Oh, and, uh, okay. Oh, yeah. And okay. And now our next reader is the winner of the audiobook. Cat <laughs> Rambo is the author of two novels, the most recent of which is Heart of Tabat or Tabat? Tabat. Five collections, 200 plus stories, several nonfiction works, and co editor of one cookbook. Uh, 
Nebula Award, World Fantasy Award, and Endeavor Award nominee. She is also two-term president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and runs online, the online school, the Rambo Academy for Wayward Writers. Are you still president? I am still president. You, course, still you did president. it twice? Oh, God. I did it twice. I don't know why. I don't know either. Yeah. Well, we well for, our, for, for the HWA, Lisa, May, Lisa Morton will not leave because we won't let her. She's been like president, I don't know, for several years. Because no one else wants to do it, and she said, all right, I'll do it. We have but term it, limits. Oh, well, that's probably a good thing, but we may never get another president. So please welcome yes. Kat Rambo. I think I actually, my birthday was November 14th. So, so I'm going to read from Hearts of Tibet. Uh, this is the second book of the Tibet Quartet. However, you can enter the Tibet Quartet through either the first book or this book. They both function to do so. The only thing that I'm going to tell you about the world of Tibet is that it's basically a secondary world fantasy, and it is a world where the humans are on top, and the intelligent magical creatures, dragons and centaurs and such, are used both for their work and sometimes for their body parts, uh, which fuel the economy. This is a moment in time when the beasts, which is kind of what the, all these creatures are called, are beginning to question that order. Um, that I'm just going to read. Obedience was a horrid name because it really wasn't something you could pursue the way most people pursued their names. Instead, you were just supposed to do what everyone said. Mama had said it was a special name and that she'd picked it very carefully, but obedience wondered how true that could actually be. With eight daughters, Maybe her mother had gone out of her way to find a name intended to minimize trouble. <laughs> Everyone else in the family was named something easy, and that was another of the many unfairnesses that ruled Obedience's life. What was she, post, what was she supposed to be obedient to? Everything? It showed how unjust the world could be. Things could be worse, though. She eyed the cart trundling along past them and the centaur that pulled it. The ragged shawl around his shoulders fastened with a wooden button, barely reached to his midriff, showing a line of bare flesh before it flowed into horsehair. His hands, each as large as her head, were wrapped around the cart harness, bearing the weight rather than letting most of it rest on his shoulders. Beasts had to do whatever their owner told them to. Apprenticeship was like that, but your master couldn't kill you or hurt you too bad, and sooner or later you were done with that and could practice a trade. She thought about apprenticeship a lot lately. Everyone else had theirs, and she didn't. It was very hard being the youngest, even though everyone thought it wasn't and called her the baby and told her she had it easy. Being the youngest meant there were eight older sisters to boss her around and tell her what to do and why whatever it was that she was doing was wrong and against the teachings of the temples. Being the youngest meant you had to follow whenever an older sister got the idea that she wanted to go somewhere on her free day but they would never go with you. Obedience mused on all of this as she followed along behind Grace, kicking lumps of ice out of the way. Her shoes were soaked through, and she'd reached the point where she didn't think her toes could get any colder. Her jacket had grown too little, but Compassion was not ready to hand hers overs yet, so a line of cold belted her unpleasantly. She would have rather stayed inside, 
There it was warmer, and there would be fresh bread later. But Mama liked the house to herself, and had told Grace to go and do something useful. How much further? she asked plaintively. But Grace ignored her. I said, how much further? she insisted. Don't whine, Grace snapped. I'm not whining, I'm cold. You're whining about being cold. <laughs> Obedience searched for a good retort, but Grace was much better at arguing than she was. All of her sisters were better at everything, only because they were older, and they all liked to rub it in. Maybe that wasn't true. Mama says it wasn't, that they loved all loved each other like little birds, but it felt true, and certainly what felt true was as close to true as could be. She trudged along the street, following in Grace's footsteps, pondering this idea. It was either one of those things that you figured out, never even thought you were terribly clever for doing so, or else it was completely wrong, and everyone would laugh at her if she said anything of the sort. It was hard to know which it might be without testing it, but Grace was decidedly not the right person to be tying it on. She was unkind about repeating Obedience's mistakes in a mocking tone, and if she protested, Grace just told her she was teasing her so she'd be stronger and be better able to bear up to teasing once she was sent to apprenticeship. Like a cartwheel, her thoughts had rolled back to that again. That was right around the corner, that prospect. After your first decade, you were sent out to work, and half your pay given to your family, and the other half to the temples, who provided so many of the staples of life, like the mushroom gruel that was their daily breakfast, and often the main ingredient of their dinner meal as well. Grace, she asked despite herself, when you were first apprenticed to the tailor, did you know that was what you wanted to do? Or did it become what you wanted to do because you'd been apprenticed to it? I did what I needed to do, Grace said grimly, and obedience thought to herself the tone was answer enough. Do you know where they'll send me? Could be anywhere. Grace's voice took on a trace of relish. I hear Alora's orchards always need workers. Obedience shuddered. The tunnels where the mushrooms called Alora's apples grew, named after the mage who had created the fungus long ago, would be sheltered from the weather, but they were dark and stinking, and she could not imagine what life would be like down there. That's not an apprenticeship, she said. Mama said you went to an apprenticeship in order to learn skills. Anyone could grow mushrooms. Grace didn't falter. Think so? But it's trickier than you think, keeping the right temperatures and dampness, breeding new flavors. Despite claims that the fungus had different flavors, obedience had never been able to distinguish anything but the main note, which tasted the way she thought dirt would taste. <laughs> Her stomach clenched. Surely that wasn't really where she'd be sent. She smelled bitter smoke amid the damp. Here we are, Grace said, not too picked over yet. We can get firewood at least. We'll go in through the alley. The building had been two stories once. The first floor sized larger than the second with wide windows now smashed and open to the sleeting rain. A few fragments of glass remained here and there, but most of the sills had been picked clean. Grace led obedience in through a back door that hung crazily on its hinges. Other scavengers stirred here, but no one dangerous. <coughs> An old man packing up the last of the kitchen equipment, two young women dismantling a stove. The girls drifted through the half-burned building, picking up scraps. Obedience found a swath of tapestry, two good arm's lengths, with the edges burned away, and they bundled it up tightly, filling their bags with chips of wood as well. In the main ballroom, much of the inlaid flooring had been pried away already, 
but obedience discovered a tiger-striped bit, shaped like a diamond, and several triangles of ebony wood, shiny and looking as burned as the wall between this room and the next. What happened here? she asked Grace. It was a gallery, caught a fire in some riot. A gallery? Like a boat? Grace's brows met as she gave obedience a scornful stare. No, it's a place where people come and look at pictures. Oh, obedience considered that. She could understand why people might come and look at pictures. Her mother had two, views of the North Stretch River that her, one of Eloquence's crewmates had painted in watercolors, and all the girls liked to look at the lines of pines and mountains and reeds and water and imagine themselves in that landscape, although only one of them, silenced, seemed likely to follow in Eloquence's footsteps and become a freshwater pilot herself. That was a skill that would yield a good living, for sure. Obedience picked at a square of reddish wood as big as a plate, but it was firmly affixed to the floor. Do they pay to come look at the pictures? She asked Grace. Grace's answer was slow, as if she were not quite sure of it. No, they come and buy the pictures to take home afterwards. Painting was not a trade that Obedience had ever considered. She wondered what sort of apprenticeships painters served. This was a rich people's place, and rich people would pay large sums of money for all sorts of things. She wondered uneasily if painting was a skill that the temples would actually approve of. The fire had burned both sets of stairs to the second floor away. One hung crazily, broken and charred. Grace looked around to make sure that no one was watching before she turned to obedience. If I lift you up, she said, you can help pull me up and turn. Obedience balked. It looks dangerous, she said. Mama wouldn't want us doing anything dangerous. She said that when we were leaving, to stay safe. That's just Mama's way. She always says that, Grace said. She laced her fingers together in a stirrup and profited to obedience. Her scowl made it clear that there was no alternative. Obedience sighed and began the ascent. The journey upward was full of splinters and soot, but both girls made it. They wandered through the rooms here, which were lower-ceilinged, but just as once richly appointed as the downstairs had been. Here, too, though, looters had stripped away most of the valuable things other than the built-in furniture, and even there the shelves that had once heard drawers gaped openly. Bales of paper, blackened on the outside, fell aside at the touch to reveal white internals, black and ready for blank and ready for words that would never come. Two separate suites both faced out over printer's row, and in one, rather than looting, someone had smashed a mash of mass of crockery and a number of terracotta house dolls, every trade god possible, it seemed. Obedience picked through the fragments, taking out the faces where she could find them, accumulating them into a little heap of smiles and eyes and pointed noses. "'What are you doing?' Grace said irritably. "'Those aren't worth anything.' Obedience bit her lip and kept down on her knees, sorting through the fragments. She thought to herself that they had value because she wanted them, even if someone else might think they were worthless. Anger smoldered in her like a damp match. "'Do you think they'll have some power because they're trade gods?' Grace persisted. That's foolish. Only the moons are real. I know that, Obedience said. I'm not a heretic. Then why are you sorting those out? Do you think you can put one back together? Obedience shook her head. Grace pulled at her shoulder, a painful yank. 
If she were big enough, she'd hurt Grace back. Reluctantly, she swept the faces she had found, two handsfuls worth, into her pockets and let Grace move her along. The fire's touch had manifested in every room, charring walls, blackening fabrics. It smelled overwhelmingly of burnt things, which was not a smell that obedience had considered unpleasant before this day, but now pressed at her nose until she found herself dipping her face into her shoulder, trying to breathe through the fabric of her cloak. Grace seemed unaffected, rushing to anything she thought might yield some value, and forcing her gleanings on obedience, whose load grew heavier and heavier as they sorted through the rooms. A brass lantern, half a picture frame, the edges gilded, a small glass jar full of some unknown white paste, a handful of yellowy gold feathers, so bright that she thought they must be painted at first. They both froze when they heard the noise from above, from below. It is abominable, a woman's high-pitched drawl, the sort of voice puppeteers put on for snooty rich people, said from below. A man's voice answered her, the rumble making it harder to discern, but ending with something like, totaling the inventory. Why bother, the woman's voice lamented. It's all gone, all destroyed or looted, and because of that arrogant dwarf. Footsteps, the clack of high heels, then boot treads following after. Grace and obedience exchanged glances. Grace's eyes were wide as hyacinth cookies, obedience was pleased to note, and her skin was moon white. She held a finger to her lips. Obedience nodded. They continued listening as the woman paced through the rooms, lamenting the state of things. I built this place from scratch, she exclaimed. There was no market for art before my time, only people commissioning portraits in order to give their descendants some idea of what they looked like. Nowadays, they can just get a picture from a pennywide. She's ruined me, and I will see her ruined in return, and Diamo, god of the balanced ledger, will bear witness. Bernarda, be reasonable. Her cousin has deep pockets, said the man. Bella Canto can afford to pay all sorts of legal fees on Leonora Canto's behalf. Then I'll tie up both coins until they can't spend a skiff, pawning off such treasonous things on me. Why did you not turn the pictures down when you first saw them, if they were so apparent in their seditious nature, the man asked. She showed me different paintings, Bernarda said after a moment's hesitation. But did you check them? Yes, a series of pictures showing the Duke's fleet all very proper and martial. Now I'm lucky if I'm not fine for supporting sedition. The man said nothing at that, but there was a dubious quality about his silence. The woman moved into a new room, which evoked an anguished shriek. Look at this floor! Six hundred golden galleons it cost, and now it looks like the shambles of a chessboard factory. Obedience couldn't help it. She choked back a laugh at that. <coughs> Shh! Grace hissed, and at that noise, all sound downstairs ceased. Is someone there? The woman called after a few seconds. Who is it? Obedience and Grace stared at each other. Obedience bit her lip in anguish. Should they answer? The other scavengers downstairs must have scattered when the woman and the man entered. Come out, or we will summon a peacekeeper, and it will go very hard with you indeed, the man shouted. Obedience scrambled to her feet. Don't, her sister hissed, but Obedience had already moved to the shattered head of the staircase. We're coming down, she called. Grace groaned but followed. 
The trip down was much faster than the agonizing upward, and she fell the last few feet when a seemingly solid but blackened handhold crumbled in her hand. The man appeared in the door, followed by the woman. His clothing was as plain and suitable as hers was elaborate and impractical, dress hem drooping with soot and water, shimmering cape splotched. Their faces were just as dissimilar, his as bluff and disinterested as a bank building, hers animated by curiosity and anger. Little thieves, she cried, and darted forward to snatch the bag from Grace's hand. She upended it, and the lantern and other oddments they'd gathered clattered on the uneven planking. I'm so sorry, ma'am, Grace said, her voice strained. My little sister was curious. Obedience flashed an indignant look sideways, but held her tongue. She was well used to sisterly blaming. Perhaps her sibling knew what she was doing and was going to get both of them off. But Grace's next words made it plain she had no such idea. And then she saw some things and thought them pretty. You understand, lady, she is but a little child and has no idea of right and wrong, led only by greed. That was, in obedience's opinion, overselling the idea to the point of betrayal. <laughs> Not much of a haul, the man commented wryly, kneeling to sort through it and setting the lantern aright. And it is the law, once a building has been examined and pronounced bankrupt, as you have pleaded for this one to be pronounced, it is the right of the city's poor to take what they want from it. But not yet, the woman snapped. He shrugged and let his grays travel around the room. Perhaps they were doing you a favor by helping dilapidate the place, he said softly. Indeed, I would hate to be unable to bend to your will because it seems repairable. He set his foot down and trod on the floor experimentally. Here, see, this whole section is unmarred and might prove a good place for a carpenter to start. You blackmail me, the woman snapped. I remind you that Diamo is a dangerous god to invoke, he said. Will you do innocence harm so soon after speaking his name? Not so innocent with my goods in their bags. Minor, meager goods, he soothed. He looked to the girls. I'm sure they're, un I'm sure they're willing to leave these things behind. Without speaking, the woman crossed her arms and turned away. The girls stood, paralyzed, until the man gestured at them, flapping a hand towards the door. Grace grabbed Obedience's hand, and they exited as quickly as possible. Outside in the street, Grace cursed. She took everything I had. Well, at least you have some left. She snatched the bag from Obedience. Obedience knew that meant Grace intended to take full credit for the contents, but she didn't mind. Grace had forgotten about the scraps of porcelain in her pockets, else she would have demanded them from Peek. But a block later, Grace paused, turning and pulling Obedience into a doorway, smelling of half-frozen piss. Look back and see if they've gone, she directed. Obedience did. They're going now, she said. Good. Go back and see if they left the things. What? Did you see them carrying them? I bet they dropped them. They didn't need them. They were just being mean. Indignation flared in her, but she went back nonetheless, creeping in through the door. The place was empty now, everyone frightened away by the presence of the two official visitors. The bag was nowhere to be found, even after she managed to scramble back up the staircase, <coughs> despite the lack of Grace's help, a struggle that left her bruised and scratched but triumphant. She decided that as long as she was there, she'd make it worth her while. Grace wouldn't come back. She'd think obedience had been caught. More likely, she'd leave without her, return home and claim she knew nothing about the absence. So obedience picked through the rooms. 
What Grace didn't know she had couldn't be bullied away. She accumulated a few scraps of gilded wood, more for their prettiness than any value, and they joined the fragments of porcelain in her pockets. Then in the corner, true treasure, a little cosmetic mirrored box of the sort nobles counted, carried, filled with scented powder. She secreted that securely in her waistband and went back to the stairs. As she reached the top, she paused. She heard nothing, but she sensed something. She sniffed the air, musk and cinnamon. Some presence lurked below. Just nerves, she told herself. She was good at scaring herself, Mama said. She was doing that now. But she didn't need to go back upstairs. She was hungry and tired. Grace couldn't complain she hadn't tried. She made her way down, step by anxious step. The darkening sky outside, she must have taken longer than she thought in her search, cast odd shadows through the broken windows, the shapes of the glass shards like ghostly daggers on the uneven floor. Inhaling as she set foot finally in the first, on the first floor, she smelled cinnamon and musk again, an unfamiliar, heady odor, too sweet, too strong, and with an underlying bitterness that made her nose wrinkle. Step. Pause to listen. Step. Listen again. What was that? A stealthy creak? She clung to the walls, trying to make for the entryway. Up ahead, a shadowed doorway that she must pass. Anything might lurk there. Anything might be waiting to pounce. Nonsense. More frightening herself, thinking thoughts from children's stories. And if she was old enough to think of apprenticing then she was no longer a child. Nonetheless, she resisted the urge to glance into the doorway as she passed, not wanting to see her imaginings there. To her shock and regret, they were not imaginings. As she took another step, a heavy weight gripped her shoulder. Stop, human child. Obedience shrieked and tried to pull away, but the weight knocked her down. She saw a flash of tawny fur, the smell was nearly overpowering, its bitter under, undernote more pronounced, rank and stomach-turning. Spy, a voice in her ear. I have your scent now, little spy. She could hear someone shout in the street, alerted by her scream. She tried to inhale in order to scream again, but the inexorable weight only drove the air further from her lungs. A clatter of footsteps from the direction of the entryway. I will remember you, the voice hissed. Then the weight was gone, and she lay there shuddering on the cold and splintered floor. Her rescuer proved a street sweeper, who tried to insist on walking her home, but she persisted on going alone. She discovered Grace, improbably still waiting. Did you get it? was Grace's first question. At Obedience's head shake, her face fell. This was what had kept her there not a sisterly concern. Someone grabbed me, Obedience said. The man came and chased them away. Grace scoffed. You're just trying to make excuses. Obedience bit her lip, but said nothing more as she trailed her sister home. On the doorstep, she stopped, hand reaching for the door. What's going on? Grace snapped. Something's going on, Obedience whispered. I can hear lots of people talking. She felt uneasy at the sound of all those voices. What could it mean? but not so with Grace. Her face glowed with sudden joy. Hurry up, open it, she said. Obedience did, but before she could step in, Grace rushed past her towards the tall figure in the center of the room, his duffel at his feet. Their brother was home.
Where did you go? Mama said after the first rush of conversation. Grace gave her a cross-eyed look, as though to say they all knew Mama had told them to go down and find what they could. But Mama just stared back, because they also knew that their brother wouldn't have approved. Activities like that were not exactly counter to temple teachings, but you were supposed to go to the temples if you needed anything. They would provide the basics, from the sacks of dried mushrooms to lengths of plain brown linen, which wore well for summer, and reed cloth, which did not for the winter and even the simple lessons that would teach a child how to read and write and do their trade sums. The thing about it all was, as their mama had told them all more than once, the temples didn't allow for people wanting a bit of something extra, a ribbon on their dress or a hyacinth cookie. We be poor enough as is, she growled, without making ourselves seem poorer. And so she started talking to Canumbra and Legio, who their brother would not have approved of at all, because they were not moon temple followers, not even to the point of wearing a coin to show what moon they were born under. Mama liked them because they always seemed to know where one of her daughters could pick up a little extra money, sometimes scrupulously, sometimes less. Before she'd been prenticed out, Grace had served as a lookout a few times, whistling to let her fellows know the Duke's peacekeepers were coming in the middle of them committing what they called requisitioning down at the docks. Their brother Eloquence was different from Canumbra and Legio. Eloquence knew his letters better than anyone, and that was because of his name. Every moon temple worshiper had a name that was their trait, the thing they were supposed to pursue in life. If they became priests, that name fell away, and they were something else, and that was interesting, but there really wasn't that much interesting about the temples other than that. The temples were about rules and how to live your life. It seemed to obedience that those outside the temples might have an easier time of it without those rules constraining them. But it was better not to say such things, because then everyone would pick on you. Still, there were rules for everything. How much you should eat at a meal, depending on who you were with and how many. The song that greets the morning and chases the night ghosts away. The proper subjects of conversation, and so much more, like ugly ropes running everywhere till you couldn't move. But she'd been born into that life, and there really wasn't any way of getting out of that without becoming a heretic and renouncing all her family and way of life. There were members of her family, every single one of her sisters, for instance, that, eloquence, that obedience could have done without, but she wouldn't have given up her brother eloquence for anything. The youngest, she had little, atten little claim to his attention and simply worshipped him from afar. And now eloquence was back, and even standing in the same room with Canumbra and Legio, and Mama looking nervously between the trio every once in a while, because everyone in the neighborhood was there, or at least what seemed to be everyone, a press of people in the room to congratulate Eloquence on having returned from yet another voyage as a river pilot. Another trip meant he would have come back with money, which was a happy thought because there were all sorts of wonderful things that the temple did not provide, and maybe even Obedience would get something new, all hers, that had never belonged to anyone else. She shouldered her way in through the crowd, looking at the corners of the room to see what other children were there. Everyone was wide-eyed and listening to Eloquence, who was talking about river pri pirates. But he broke off when he saw obedience and held his arms out to her. She didn't care that everyone was looking at her as she stepped forward and let herself be swept up. He was twice her 13 years and twice as tall. Had he grown even larger when he was on the boat? And he had gone away last autumn and been gone all this time. She savored the smell of him, apples and coal smoke and a little bit of sweat, a good solid smell. Then silence was at their side as well, 
pulling on Eloquence's vest, and all the other girls pushed forward, clamoring for attention. Eloquence set obedience down, and she landed on the floor with a thump of her heels. He gave her a quick grin and a wink before he began digging through his pockets for the presents he'd brought. Everyone that was visiting had brought some food or drink, sometimes even both. Someone brought out pat drums and someone else a whistle, and then a cord ran home to fetch her guitar, and before long everyone was singing, with only a few people still eating or drinking or talking, but mostly listening to the music, which was wonderful because you didn't often hear that many people singing together all at once. It had a way of erasing all the bad voices, or at least of finding places where they seemed to fit and to do the least harm to the overall song. Mama unexpectedly let them all stay up until the very last visitor had stepped away out the door. Silence and compassion were yawning, and Grace was actually asleep in the corner, curled up next to Eloquence's duffel, but Obedience remained awake, drinking in each new thing, and all the stories that Eloquence told, wonderful stories of what a day on the river was like, and how in the morning you could see the little dragons splitting back and forth among the cattails, trying to catch frogs. The door closed on the last visitor's heels, and Mama turned to Eloquence. Well, my boy, I suppose you've earned a bit of a rest, but knowing you, you aren't ready to take it. What's next? I need to visit the moon temples before anything else, Eloquence said, his cheerful voice taking on a somber note. Why? Is something wrong? When I was coming down, a priest asked me to undertake a mission to bring a boy down to the temples. What happened to him? He was promised to them as a thank ye for his sister being saved from illness. The priest entrusted him to me because he was too ill to travel, caught by a fairy bite. The boy didn't know what he wanted, but it wasn't the temples. When he got the chance at the docks, he ran away into the crowd, and no one saw another sign of him. The mage cast a spell and learned he died already, though, no, not, though we know not how. So I must go and tell the temples all this. Obedience thought about what it being promised to the temples would have meant for that boy. It would have meant that he couldn't go out of the temple without permission, and that would have been true all his life, even after he was an adult. It would have meant all his work was dedicated to the temple, so he could have had no coins of his own, only what the priest gave him to spend when he asked for it. Obedience. In theory, any worshiper of the moon temples could ask for money if they knew thought they needed it, but that wasn't really how it worked. The priests or priestesses would ask you questions and find out what you needed the money for and how you intended to spend it and whether or not you intended to pay the temples back eventually. The answer implied by the discussions was always yes, and if so, how soon and at what terms. Obedience knew this because after eloquence had gone away, that was how Mama had tried to make sure that the rent was paid. But the priest had scowled and then argued with her, saying she could sell some of the furniture, and so Mama had given up on that. She had sold some of the furniture, but more, before more than a few pieces were gone, Granny Beeswax had introduced her to Canumbra and Legio. The pair had frightened obedience at first, the way they looked at her, but there Mama had stood up to them, as she had done nowhere else, had snapped that they could keep their own eyeballs in their heads or else see them slapped out, and it had stopped the surreptitious pinches and worse fondlings that had preceded the showdown. Now they had become second nature, the way they came round to find whichever sisters were available, which was always at least whoever had their purple blessing the day after that came after seven days of work by temple law and the youngest and unapprenticed obedience. They didn't make her do anything she didn't like, but there was a lot of taking messages from one place to another, and sometimes she wondered why they didn't just hire a regular courier rather than come all the way to their house to fetch one of the girls. 
they felt off. That was the thing about them. And for a long time, Obedience had thought to herself that would all change when Eloquence was home. Would it? She'd asked Mama once if she'd promised one of them to Granny Beeswax. And Mama had laughed and said, why would she ever think she would do such a thing? But as Obedience had turned away, it had seemed to her she could feel her mother's eyes resting on her shoulders, their pale blue depths gone deeper with speculation. And I will end there. So that that's for sale now, yes? Cat? It's for sale. I mean it is it's for sale. You can get it on Amazon and you could go to Barnes and Noble and special order it. Yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. All right. Well thank you very much. So that's about it for tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Happy Thanksgiving. Have a drink, tip them, tip the bartenders, and uh, we'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.